It's Monday, March 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me from Colorado is Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers. Tim, how are you doing during these very, very strange times? Uh, I, it is an incredibly strange time, and uh, I'm doing okay, Mac. I'm, I'm hanging in there. I miss uh, I miss seeing my Fularado uh, coworkers, but it's good to see you, buddy. I, I uh, you know, we're doing a lot of this connecting over Zoom, and I hope other people are getting that chance too. Yes, through the miracle of Zoom, I can see you. You can see me, Tim. It is a gray day here in Virginia, a little overcast, um, and as I have CNBC playing in the background. Looks like the Dow right now down around 5%, which looking at the futures last night, looking at the futures this morning, could have been a lot yep. worse. Yep. And yet, you know, still not great. Um, but the big news is the Fed once again announcing additional measures. Um, this time, the Fed announcing unlimited bond buying and a lending program for small and medium-sized businesses. Those are just yep. a few of the highlights. And Tim, of course, this is playing out as Congress continues to work on a stimulus package. What does it all mean for investors? It means a couple of things. The first is that the Fed is is an anchor here, and the Fed is going to spend whatever it needs to spend. The way to think about this, I saw a quote that says, let's think of this as QE unlimited. I think that's right. So when the Fed is buying so QE up- QE would be quantitative easing, right? Right. And so just defining this quickly. So when the Fed does this, when it, the Fed goes into the, the process of buying assets, that's quantitative easing. And so right now, the Fed has said there is no limit. We will buy whatever we need to. So what this means for investors means a couple of things. The first is that the Fed is trying to put a floor on where we are as, as an economy and where we are as a, as a stock market. They're trying to inject some level of confidence saying, look, what, whatever needs to be done, we will do it. We will spend whatever we have to do. We will buy as many corporate bonds as we need to. And the interesting thing here, Mag, it's still an X factor, but uh, that means potentially that the Fed could get into the process of buying stocks. Um, now, I don't think when the Fed buys stocks, it's a little bit like Buffett buying stocks. If we go back and just look at our history a little bit, in 2008, when Warren Buffett took a big position in Goldman Sachs, and when Carlos Slim, you know, the Mexican billionaire, took a big uh, uh, position in New York Times Company, those deals had strings. Um, that was essentially preferred equity. And so, if the Fed comes in and starts buying up, say, airline stocks or starts buying up bank stocks, there will be strings there. They will be first in line. And so they'll jump in front of common, common equity investors, and it may dilute things a little bit. So there's a, there's a limit to which this is good news for investors. But overall, Mac, I'd say in the short term, this is good news for investors. And Tim, we haven't even mentioned the stimulus that as Congress and the Senate is trying to hammer out a deal, right. that could be another big development that plays out today. I, I agree. And and that, you know, that side of the equation is meant to inject some some confidence because we are a consumer-driven economy. And so if consumers have no capital, if you know unemployment reaches 30% and consumers can't buy, then, then the markets will react to that. And so this stimulus package is meant to put some money into the into the pockets of average Americans and keep at least some of the buying going. 
because so much of our economy depends on you and me uh, making purchases at the grocery store or making buys on Amazon. You know, whatever it is, you know, consumer spending is a massive part of the American economy. So this stimulus package, which is, if I understand it correctly, is meant to inject some direct buying power, like literally mailing checks to average Americans, in addition to creating some backups, so like you know, very low interest or zero interest loans that can be forgiven for small businesses, local businesses, including some bigger businesses as well. It's just meant to provide some firmament here, a little bit of stability in an economy that's very, very shaky right now. And Tim, I want to bring it to the personal level here. As all of this is playing out, how do you think about your individual portfolio? How do you approach investing? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I've been doing personally is uh, being a buyer, uh, although I'm I'm not being, uh, you know, I'm really not going at it indiscriminately. I'm being pretty careful. And the reason I'm being careful is because there are so many unknowns. And when you don't know what you don't know, it's tough to be backing up the truck, as Peter Lynch, you know, used to say, where you would just be a, a, a massive buyer of a stock at a certain price because it, it had fallen to a very attractive price. I'm not backing up the truck, but what I am doing is sort of creating a dream list of stocks that I really want to own, like five to 10 that I would really love to get. And then I'm targeting those businesses and buying in very small chunks. Like I literally, Mac, you know, when I've made buys, it's like a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. And we can do that now because every major brokerage is at zero commissions. So when I put in a couple of hundred bucks, I'm not paying for that. I'm just getting the shares. And so I think as a as a common investor, if you're a, a you know a common foolish investor and you're looking to to add, I would say put little bits of capital to work at a time. Uh, have a dream list and and look to buy those stocks in small increments. Tim, that is such a great reminder because I think sometimes we tend to fall into this binary trap of it's either all or nothing. Right. I can invest or I cannot invest. And then we amp that up with this pressure of trying to time the bottom, which right. really we, we have no idea you know, on any given day or in any given week if the market's going to go down more. Right. And uh, what, what's our email address, Mac? If, if you can time the bottom, we want to hear from you at MarketFoolery. <laughs> at Fool.com. Exactly. If you have figured that out, I suspect that if you figured out how to time the bottom, you may not be listening to our podcast right now. I, 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 I think so. You may be on an island somewhere and you may be thinking about the next island you're going to buy. Exactly. Well, let's move on. Um, some big tech companies teaming up with the White House on COVID-19 research. On Sunday, President Trump announcing that IBM, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft will provide computer firepower for COVID-19 research. Tim, you are well-versed in all things cloud computing. What do you think about this new initiative here? I love that the you know the mini me of of cloud computing, which is which is IBM, is the one that's leading this effort. You know because that irony. is harsh. <laughs> now, why are they mini me? Why are yeah, they? They, mini -me? they are they are they are lagging in cloud computing market share badly over the big rivals. Like so, Amazon is far and away the leader here. Uh, Microsoft is number two, and then Google is is really third. All of them are teaming up, though. IBM is leading the effort. Um, so there's there's irony here, and irony never disappoints. And yet, what does make this interesting and makes it very um, 
uh, interesting to me personally as an investor is that I, what IBM lacks in cloud computing market share, it makes up for in spades in terms of supercomputing power. So IBM still makes a lot of hardware. They still make mainframe computers. They make very high-end servers. And so they can actually deliver very high-end machines that can do a lot of these calculations at very, very high speed. And combined, what this, this group, this conglomerate can do is they can put more computing power to work on sort of deconstructing the COVID-19, you know, the, this coronavirus, you know, its structure, its RNA, all of these things. Um, they can put more compute power than we had for deconstructing the human genome, you know, in battling this. So I think uh, these guys taking the war to the coronavirus is good news. Um, and I think, you know, what we're going to see now is different research organizations, academic and otherwise, around the country and around the world, tapping into this giant cloud computing consortium and just pumping in data. Here's what we know, here's what we know. And then you're gonna see a lot of this data come together and you'll have data scientists and others sort of pouring over looking for patterns. And that can accelerate the, uh, the race to some kind of solution, some kind of understanding of how we can combat this thing. I love this story, Tim. It, it feels to me like it's it's the super friends kind of. Is it Wonder Powers activate or what was yes, that? Yes, exactly. Deal? Yeah, the Wonder Twins. Wonder yes. Twin Powers activate. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I yeah. love that. So, so some good news potentially coming out of all this. And I want to come back to Amazon because Amazon is a um, an interesting story throughout throughout all this because Amazon one of the few companies right now, Tim, that is hiring. Yes. And not just hiring, but they are hiring a lot. And Walmart hiring as well. And I'm curious, when you look at Amazon, when you look at Walmart, when you look at the fact that more and more people's consumer behavior is changing because yep. of this virus, do you think those changes to retail, do you think those are lasting? Do you think we're watching something play out where retail is forever changed? Or do you think when this settles out, then we revert back to where we were? I don't think we revert back to where we were. And I also think part of the equation depends on how long this goes. However, I will say that the longer we get used to the idea of buying groceries, let's say, you know, remotely from, say, a Walmart or from, uh, you know, getting deliveries from Amazon, the more we do that, I think the more that becomes a habit. And once, you know, I think, what is it? It takes about 30 sustained days or up to 90 sustained days in order to build a habit. Once those habits are codified, I think it's going to be tough to go back. So there is, I think, some permanent disruption of things like local grocery stores, maybe, you know, local natural food stores, um, local retailers. You know, I think, you know, there's, and, and even more so like regional retailers, those small businesses that, um, you know, maybe are in a couple of states, but haven't really gained a lot of traction yet. To the degree that Amazon and Walmart suck up oxygen in the room, I think um, that's going to mean some, some dramatic changes in the retail landscape over the next year to three years. Now, who's immune from this? Um, I don't know that anybody's specifically immune from it, but there are sharp discount retailers. So like Dollar Tree, for example, is also hiring. I think Dollar Tree is one of those that may be more immune than others because it just serves a niche that Amazon and Walmart just won't touch. That ultra low discount retailer, I don't think those are going anywhere. And Tim, um, to wrap up here, when you and I were slacking back and forth last night, 
Um, you said that one of the storylines that you're watching and one of the big stories to you was what you called the return of the balance sheet. What do yes. you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by the return of the balance sheet? Because so here's the thing, you know, um, when you look back at history and we can go as far back as the Great Depression. So let's start there. The October 1929 crash in part was fueled by an enormous number of speculators borrowing money and companies that had borrowed money indiscriminately. And so there was borrowing upon borrowing. And as that leverage got unwound, we saw massive losses, massive selling, you know, economic ruin for some people. Now we're not back at that stage, but same thing if you go to like the 2000, uh, 2001 crisis, the 2008, you know, great recession, companies that just didn't have the balance sheet, meaning they had too much debt and not enough cash, and they weren't producing cash flow to add to that balance sheet. Those companies were weakened. They just didn't have the resources to withstand this massive shock to the system, and they ended up dying. Um, so some of the dot coms were the ones like they they grew very quickly. They grew on a, on a lot. Of, they just didn't have revenue. They didn't have resources to survive. So they died in the 2008, you know, Great Recession. Companies that were vastly uh, over leveraged, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, they just went away because they didn't have the cash to survive this. So when I think of return of the balance sheet, Mac, what I'm really talking about is companies that have billions upon billions of dollars, they have more cash than debt, or they have access to a lot of liquid resources. And so they, you know, the bank can't call somebody up the CEO's office and say, hey, you know what, that $10 billion loan you, you, you have with us right now, we're pulling it. And that could hurt the business, that could impair it materially or kill it. You know, companies that can, that aren't in that kind of position are gonna survive this and they're gonna come out stronger on the other side of this crisis. Okay, so I wanna follow up on that. When you say they're gonna come out stronger, any big acquisitions? You wanna make a prediction about a company that you think might be well-suited in terms of a big acquisition? Yeah, I think that Amazon, so what we're seeing, we talked about Amazon and and you know their prowess in logistics and just delivery, like I've been out you know, walking every day. And I would say two out of three days when I go out walking, I see a prime truck, you know, it's just delivering. And whether they're delivering groceries or they're just delivering other packages, I don't know what they're delivering, but Amazon has a massive logistics business. I think they are going to eat every element of the delivery business, including food delivery. I think they're gonna acquire Grubhub. I think Grubhub is getting cheaper. Grubhub is kind of the class of the food delivery business. Uber is getting out of Uber Eats. There's going to be a vacuum, you know, in that market, and I think Amazon is prime positioned to make a lucrative bid for Grubhub, soak up that business, and become the delivery mechanism of choice for just about everything that you could want, you know, ordered and delivered to your door. Did you just say Amazon was in the prime position, Tim? Do I you did. Wanna, was that intentional or? That is, that is an accidental pun, but I'll take credit for it anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, as we wrap up then, with that in mind, with that bold prediction in mind, I'm going to hit you with a desert island question. Okay. You, you're, this may hit a little too close to home right now, given our current circumstances, but you're on a yep. desert island yep. for the next five years. You can only own one of these stocks. Let's throw Grubhub in the mix. 
um, let's say Grubhub, Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, or Google? I'm going to take Amazon. And the reason for that is, by the way, I feel like I'm a desert, on a desert island sometimes <laughs> with the, you know, the, the social isolation we're, we're having to go through. And I think others feel the same way. Amazon wins this for a very specific reason, not because of logistics, even though I think logistics is an amazing business for them. I think if you do the math, Amazon Web Services, that core cloud computing business they've got, is worth at least $400 billion. So that leaves about $600 billion for the greatest e-commerce business in the world that's also rolling up to be one of the greatest logistics businesses in the world. That is not a fair evaluation. There's no way that's fair. Amazon is ridiculously undervalued right now. Amazon's my pick. Okay, Tim, and I lied. Before we really wrap up, I want to <laughs> I want to get I want to get one more tip from you. You you now work out of our Colorado office, um, Fullerado, before the pandemic here. But yep. for many for many years, you worked from home. So yep. we've got we've got more and more people working from home right now. How about one tip for anyone who is new at working from home? That's a great question. So for me, I think the number one thing is make your space a space you want to go to. Like it feels homey, it feels interesting, it has things that you want. That could be knickknacks on your desk, it can be, um, you know, it can be the right equipment that you need. Um, it can be, you know, having the right books, space for books. If you like um, having CNBC on in the background, have a small TV that allows you to, to play, you know, CNBC in the background. Make your space personal and make it a place you want to go to because if, if it's a place that you tolerate, you will hate working at home after a couple of weeks. I love that. I love that, Tim. Well, I think I mentioned this recently, but my, my one thing is every day, for whatever reason, I feel like I need to put on a shirt with a collar, and that's a win for me. If I put on a button-down shirt, then I feel like, okay, time to work. It's like my uniform. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? If you can get yourself into that, into that mental space where you're like, okay, here I am. I'm sitting down. I am ready to work, and you're not immediately uh, tempted to procrastinate or goof off, you will have success working at home. But, uh, but if you don't have those routines, uh, start working to develop them. The easiest way to do that is make your space enjoyable. I love it. And if anyone has any tips on how to better work from home, or if you have any thoughts or questions about anything that Tim and I have talked about, marketfoolery at fool.com is our email, marketfoolery at fool.com for all of your questions and your comments. Tim Byers from Colorado, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mac. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Mac Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.